You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is some of my best friends or Kabbalists, and I'm here speaking to Rav Nassan Notaglik, who is speaking to us, of course, from Eretz Yisrael, Artseinu Akhtoisho, from Ashkelon, of giants, people that we're so indebted to, who explained the cryptic, strange, anthropomorphic statements that are in Chazal in ways that suggest and are close to the derech of the Balei Said, but not exactly there. And in some ways, they aren't just some sort of vestige of an old-fashioned way of Parshonas. I think what, what you inspired in me was you know, I, I'd actually like to find within their writings the really, uh, not buried so deep, but in a way, a lot of those great principles that we later find spoken out beforeish by the Arizal and his Talmidim, or you know, perhaps maybe from the earlier Mukabom as well. And sort of the of stuff in Agarita and in, in Midrashim, even stuff that we relate to as, as being self-evident, like something like, you know, statements like that, where you wonder to yourself, what is this, what is this Shechina that we're talking about? And of course, you know, the, you have the Kabbalah answer, um, which of course is grounded in a whole lattice work of tires and assumptions and things. But maybe it's something much more simple. You know what is what is Shechina? You know what is this what is this quality that that goes down with us and you know it goes down to Mitzrayim and it comes up from Mitzrayim. What is it? And you kind of stuck a little bit because like you say, well, You know, if it's not a Kaddish Baruch if it's some sort of like phenomenon, you know, there's this phenomenon which is not caused by anything that we can know. But it goes down with us to Egypt and it comes up. If it's just, or they used to call it a covered nivra in the language of the of the uh, Rishonim of the philosophical bed. So if it's a something, then what good is it? And if it's a kaddish baruch hu so you know, so how does a kaddish baruch hu go anywhere? You know, it's like he's he's infinite. He's outside of the cosmos, or or you know, he's he's as big as the cosmos and beyond and beyond and beyond and beyond and beyond. So how does HaKadosh Baruch Hu go down to, to Egypt? Like, what are you talking about? Well, remember, Nelson, that the, with the example that you just chose, of course, is an example of Chazal sort of highlighting a Pasuk, you know, as opposed to uh, some sort of Sipur, Agada, or like like what we talked about last week, how do we know HaKadosh Baruch Hu Maniach Tefillin? Here what you have is the Psukim themselves say that Anoichi, you know, Vahoshivesvusenu. The Psukim themselves indicate just by their reading. Now, of course, you're you're correct. The Benezra and the other Mafarsha Mikra and the Rambam, of course, uh, echoing that says none of these Psukim, of course, even in Unkalis, I should have even said, all of these Psukim that seem to portray God as having a body or as, as being influenced and somehow being uh, overwhelmed by what we think are things that only happen to created beings, all of those are reinterpreted from Unkelis on down in a way that aren't literal. Since you mentioned Unkelis, excuse me, there's this 
phraseology that he very often has that there's a, a word that goes out from before me. It's like or something like that. I don't remember the, you know, but that's often often used in, in, in relation to these kind of phenomenon. Right. It's not the creator himself, but that it's some sort of agent that he created that is able to act with it. Well, once again, if, it, if he created it, it's not him. So then what is it worth? And if it's him, how can it be? It's a moment of shach, and it's really pretty. It's really pretty difficult to navigate around. I always thought that there's this wonderful piece in the beginning of the Sefer Akuzari where he Yehuda Halevi introduces this. In my translation, it's it's known as the Inyan Ha'aloiki. You know, he starts by presenting a hierarchy of aspects. You have the natural aspect, Ho'inyan Ha'tivi, that's responsible for life. And then you have Ho'inyan Hanafshi, which is responsible for movement and, and sensation. And then on top of that, you have Ho'inyan Hasichli, which is responsible for thought. And, you know, that'll get you pretty far. But then you have a Madrega that really transcends all of that, and he calls it Ho'inyan Ha'eloikis. You know, it's the divine something, the divine aspect. Part of the point that the Kuzari was trying to make was that we don't really bother define, trying to define what the Inyan Hativi is. We just kind of like see it around us and we kind of know what it is. And we don't try to define exactly what the Inyan Hasichli is because we have it, we know it, and we operate with it. So in a way, you don't have to try and define the Inyan Ha'iloiki, but you do have to accept that it operates. And Inyan Ha'iloiki is something that you can bump into. It's not logical. It's not built into the logic. Otherwise, that would be the Inyan Asichli. If you happen to have an encounter with the Inyan Ha'iloiki, that rewrites your entire perception of everything. Then you can see that the world is created and not constant. And you can see that a Kaddish Baruch Hu can be misdabek in his creation and not always be utterly transcendent relative to it. You know, you can ha- see that a Kaddish Baruch Hu has an interest in individuals as opposed to being purely universal and all of those things. But it's kind of like an encounter. You have to encounter this Inyan Ha'eloiki. To some extent, the Kuzari, the uh, Rabbi Huda Levi also holds that the ability to encounter the Inyan Ha'eloiki is almost a genetic component that runs in certain families. Let me, let me take up on this a little bit. That was the third name that in our pre-recording discussion that we have, like when we catch a moment that we were saying, well, it's, maybe we should have Yehud Ali also posit the great Rabbi Yehud Alevi, who doesn't have the status you know, of, of the halachist, although it seems from what people write about him that he was more than just a great poet and a philosopher. There are, of course, uh, achronim, actually even the Balamor, who actually references the Kuzari uh, when he goes through his opinion of what we call the international dateline issue. So you see that uh, Nabalamor was extremely picky about who he elevated, that they felt that this Yehuda Levi was indeed not just a prince of a person, but also a Nosi in terms of his ideas of Torah. And their Medayat from the Kuzari, I, I've, I've seen in other places from Akronim as well, that you can use the Kuzari as, as one of the great Rishonim. Again, I'm a little bit hesitant to give him that pedestal, but I, I appreciate his influence, definitely in terms of, of poetry and other things, are, is, is immense. And therefore, uh, I, I agree with you that he represents a very important shlav in Jewish thinking. 
But the union of Loki that he talks about, and it really explains so much, because why is it that Sefer Beratius gives us these, we always hear the sort of like in, insults to, oh, is that all the begats that you're talking about? All these begats and these people that, of course, live a tremendously long life. Uh, but Mehud Alevi explains that it's crucial to see the Inyan Eloki in those people that are mentioned, that most of the population did not have it. And the descriptions of particular individuals of their lifespans and their children is, if you know how to follow uh, the grid probably, is really an exploration or at least an indicator of how that Inyan Eloki, starting from Odom Arishon, created by God, continued to subsist and how uh, it was embodied in Noah, and how, as he says further, that it becomes uh, implanted in Avram Avinu. So in other words, the Sipra Toro, Sefer Beratius, in other words, is about this Inyan Eloki. It's not really the journey of Adam and, and the, his descendants. It's actually the journey of the Inyan Eloki through the world until it found somebody that it could actually as he say, be mischaber with, you know, which is which is Yaakov and his Yaakov and his children, where there was a mischabrus of the Indian, like which we still haven't defined in any way. But it wanders around the world from one generation to the next. It is the representation of God. Now, does that align? Although it's you wouldn't call it rational, because I could see the Rambam tapping Yehuda Levi on the shoulder and saying. What are you talking about? What is this Indian Eloki that you're talking about? Can you please describe it? Like, how is it greater? Oh. How is it greater than any philosophical? It's like the Indian Asichli, but much better. And which the Raman would say, well, isn't pushing yourself to the ultimate abstract thought really bonding with that ultimate thought process of God? Isn't that really God who creates the, the intellectual rules that undergrid the, the whole universe? And when you understand them, that's basically as far as you can go. What is this Inyan Eloki that is somehow found in this human being and not found in another human being because they don't have the Inyan Eloki? And, and you have to have it in order to get it. That's also slightly contradictory there. Because you know, part of the aspect of the Inyan Eloki is that you can actually bump into it. You know, it's like the muscle of the king of India. You know, so you know, I, I bumped into somebody that came from India and he showed me all these wonderful things that the king of India wants to give me. So, I mean, I have that personal experience of it, so that's how I know that there's a king of India, which is much different than somebody who has to sit in an ivory tower speculating about the existence of the king of India, which is a di completely different thing. You know, the Indian Alechi has, has, has a sense of both being an encounter, which may or may not happen, as well as it has a sense of being something that at least the potentiality for it, you know, moves along from generations. Look, I believe that your love for the Chachmas Asoid and your belief of how it has always been coursing through, in one form or another, Claudius Yisrael's history from, especially, uh, you know, in those dark times, that Yehuda, you believe that Yehuda Levi uh, was, if not intimately familiar, was reflecting a system that was aligned, Kabbalah could align itself with it, the later Kabbalah, the way it, it was explicated by, by the later teachers, the ones that I mentioned in my introduction. But I, I would like to disagree. I, I, again, my learning of the Kuzari, which comes again from Ibn Shmuel's translation from the Arabic, 
I did study Kuzari and I tried to keep the Arabic with me uh, as much as possible and tried to somehow figure out what those phrases meant that I was reading in, in Hebrew. It was, in other words, Hebrew letters with Arabic words. And, and I believe that he is, in a way, anti-philosophical. And, and I can understand why the Rambam and people, the adherents to the Rambam, wouldn't be turned on, so to speak, by the Sefer. I think he was trying to capture, not a king of the Khazars, but he was trying to capture the intellectual Jewish populace of Spain that had become influenced by the sort of pseudo-Aristotelian approach of the Arabs. Uh, you know, we had the enlightened Arab thinkers in the area, and the Jews spoke the same language. The book is written in Arabic. And therefore, it was uh, a book that was, again, it was it's a, a sly fiction. Maybe it's not so sly, because uh, obviously his readers were not meant to be, you know, although I've met a number of non-Jewish persons who say they were duly inspired by the work, his intended readership were the Jews who he felt were in a way becoming a jaundiced towards real yadus, and also in terms of their kiyama mitzvos. And we know this from the Smag and other Rishonim who wrote not that far away from Yehuda Levi's time, that people were becoming quite lax in Asiyas HaMitzvahs, in large part because they didn't deny that it was in the Torah, but they felt that they were all in many ways allegoric, symbolic. Uh, they were being interpreted in sort of like philosophical way that meant you didn't really have to actually fulfill those things and not wear the shotness and take the rule of an esrin. And I think that's what Yehuda Levi felt he needed to write the Kuzari. And I, I am sure that it was a wonderful read because although I don't read Arabic, I get the sense that the phrasing and also here's what Yehuda Levi I think is great at. And I don't think the Rashba or the Maral could match him. He was able to impart a certain sense of personality uh, to his characters. I don't know if I could figure out who would play the king and who would play the Chocham, but he gives in their questioning and in their responses uh, a sense of, of a person developing. And, and assuming the Chocham is this incredibly wise person, you also realize that he's not spilling all his beans. He's not showing all his cards. And the king also, people sometimes who don't know how to learn the Sefer Nelson will say, oh, well, this is different than he wrote in Maimar Aleph, so it'll differently he refers to it in Maimar Beis. They don't realize this is a dialogue. And many times the way you describe things to your child is not the way you describe things to your teenager. And I think that's part of what's going on with the work. As you get to each Maimar, till you get to the fifth one, it becomes more sophisticated. And the king has already become closer to the where you perhaps want your average Jew in Spain to be. So again, I, I appreciate what you're saying, that it's a work that mysticism seems to radiate and away from it. What I would say is anti-philosophy radiates from it. And it's an appeal to find, and unlike what the Rambam did, to find the truths of the Torah within the Torah itself, as opposed to seeing the Torah as a response to 
the historical state of the way the Jews were, as, as opposed to looking at Maimari Chazal as being a hint to the same philosophical system that was the truth that Aristotle and others knew, he felt that there was something unique, specific, distinct in our Torah and in Chazal. And if one continues in this approach, one can find a Judaism and a mitzvot that don't need to borrow terminology and abstract concepts from Arabs and other places. And, and in that way, I guess you're right. It, it is similar to the greatness of why we think Kabbalah is so great, because it's, it, it, it represents the truth, so to speak, of the Torah. Let me just cut in and, and say that, yes, the Kuzari is very anti-philosophical. It was anti-Aristotle. He didn't, you know, he didn't think that Aristotle's philosophy held up, and he critiques it pretty severely and well in the fifth chalik. But that's, you know, that's not the point that I'm really trying to make. I'm just trying to you know, go back and say, listen, what is, you know, when, when we talk about the presence of a Kaddish Baruch Hu in the world, which is why you know, we're crying over the base of Migdash because we no longer have the presence of a Kaddish Baruch Hu in the world. What are we really talking about? Is it some sort of phenomenon that's supposed to remind us of, of something? Or once again, is it a Kaddish Baruch Hu and, and neither neither of the two possibilities are reasonable. And I just I just want to say that you know I'm, I what I detected in the in the Rajba's shot or explanation of mitzvah tefillin is also something quite similar. It's like a presence or yeah, there's a presence there which you attach to yourself. It's not just the boxes and the and the information that's written inside of it. You know, right? We were commanded to put the tefillin shalyad on the arm close to the heart, for two intentions. The first intention is to hint at the idea that the love of Hashem and his unity and the remembrance of his miracles are like a seal on our arms. Now, what does, what does that mean? Ahavas Hashem. Well, Ahavas Hashem is an emotion that we have. But why do you, why do you want your emotion to be sitting on your arm as a seal? You know, and and Yehuda, Hakadosh Baruch Hu's Yehuda is sitting on your arm also. What is that? And then it goes on Lahayres and also to teach you Kiresh's Hasechal because the the Rashba seems to have a shita where the Tefillin Shaliyad is really the origin of whatever it is that we're talking about. So the Reishes Hasechal v'Shor Shayshuhu Balev Meito Yisbarach. So you know the origin of the intellect, which is in the heart, is from him. So Ganesh Baruch Hu is the foundation of everything, and all the intellects, which here probably means the celestial intellects, but let's not get into that, all draw from him who is the root of everything. And this is going back to Tefillin Shil Rosh now, to hint the idea that the idea of the mind, which is or the brain, which is the place where the intellect is received, and that it flows up or flows down upon it from the heart, from him, meito yisbarach, from HaKadosh Baruch Shehu shayrishu lahascholo v'lihispashtus, that the tefillin shalyad is the root of the beginning and of the extension. I mean, there's, there's a lot here. We have no way we can unpack all this stuff right now, but there's, I'm, just trying, I'm just trying to say that in the Rajput's terminology, when you're doing mitzvah tefillin, you've got some sort of inyan haloiki that is cleaving to you. That's why you do this. 
it's a way I think it's a way of saying, look, simply your mind by itself cannot grasp HaKadosh Baruch Hu because you know he's he's beyond your thought. But you can bring his thought into the world and make it appear on your head and on your heart or on your arm. And if your thought follows suit with HaKadosh Baruch Hu's manifestation of thought, okay, then you can actually perceive him. That's the message that I'm getting. But that still leaves the that still leaves the question in place. Now the Rajba is assuming that that you can, you know, that you can understand what this is or basically have a feeling for it or okay, yeah, that makes sense, you know, kind of in a in a simplistic sort of way. When he's really actually he's not explaining, I don't think that the full picture of what any of this means. So it's not Kabbalah, because Kabbalah would be even more extreme than that. But he is dealing with some kind of secretness of some kind, which I think would actually help our Avaidas Hashem really, really much if we could access it, if we could understand what it is. If we could understand what it is, you know, maybe we could really experience it. If we could experience it, oh man, what, you know, that would make a big difference in, the, in mitzvah's tefillah. I think part of the reason why people who learn this today are a little bit confused or, or would struggle is because we do not wear tefillin all day. In other words, since the idea of tefillin, Nelson, is to basically <laughs> enclose you completely, I mean, that's that's your lavush. So your whole day, which is full of and mitzvahs, and all the other mitzvahs that you're being makayim, is really done under the shadow or under the auspices of the tefillin that you're wearing. You're enveloped in the presence of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. But once again, we're going back to the issue. What is the presence of a Kaddish Baruch Hu? What is the Indian, Indian Haloik? But it comes, I think, at least in this piece, we know that you're going to be an Eved Hashem, And we know that your day is going to be to check those boxes of Avoda. But this is what you wear. This is your skin that you wear in order to actually effectively do every mitzvah. And, and, and since we know what's in these boxes. We know what's written there, which is Avas Hashem, Yichudo, Zichron Movsov. Those things that you're talking about are your inherent knowledge because these are the partios that you know what they mean. You've studied them since you've been a child before you even started to put on tefillin. And you have them on your body uh, strapped strongly onto your arm. So therefore you're processing them, you're thinking about them. That's what I think he means when he says, You've studied that. It goes beyond that. He's describing, How do you get that? Just sitting in your chair in your living room, wearing a, wearing a pair of tefillin, if you wear them all day. This is what I'm struggling with, basically. And I, I think I've maybe, I don't know, two-thirds of an answer or three-eighths of an answer, I don't know, whatever, but it's but I'm I'm willing to wear my heart on my sleeve and and, and say it. Well if not on your sleeve, but at least on my arm or on your arm. Yeah. No sleeves, chatzitza, right? again, but Nelson, you know, you sort of like blindsided me a little bit by inserting the Rashpan and Rabbi Levi. I was going on by Levi. I'm with you on the Rashpa. And and I think before you give us the three eighths compromise I will read to you just a little bit and read to everybody else the beautiful words that the Rashba introduces in this whole essay, which is basically part of a book 
that he felt needed to be written. A book needed to be written because uh, by the time the Rashba was in his the greatness of his influence, what had arisen at the time was a threat to what we call Orthodox Judaism today from Christianity that had a, a two-pronged assault. There was, of course, pushing Jews forcibly uh, into conversion, but there was also convincing Jews that really, if they looked at the Talmud, which was to them the ultimate book, they would find either A, allusions to ideas in Christianity, and therefore the Talmud itself is really secretly promoting, throwing off the laws of Torah and accepting Jesus, if you're really there, or it would stir up the pot enough, giving people the sense that the Talmud was either ridiculous or wrong, that they could then pierce the armor and start convincing Jews, especially as the Christian culture offered them a greater sense of security, greater wealth, uh, and many other things that if they would just join, uh, they would be happier. So the Rashba realized that he needed to defend the Talmud and specifically the Agada of the Talmud, because that's where either there was messianic hints to Jesus there, or it's so strange and so weird that this is not a book that you want to uh, clasp close to you. You should get rid and stop being a Talmudic Jew. And that's why the Rashba wrote these defenses of selected pieces of Agadita that he felt were already being used as salvos against forbidding Judaism. But as he writes in his introduction, and again, you'll allow, allow me again, I know you, you translated very well, but I just want to capture for our listeners he says that <laughs> there are things that are beyond. And we can find them hinted at by Medrash, which is, of course, interpretations of verses and also stories, uh, descriptions that seem to be strange, that are closed off and strange. And when people who are foolish people who think they're smart but are not, ignoramuses who pretend that they have intelligence, they say, oh, this is Kedvarim B'Telim. And of course, these are the attackers, the Mishumodim of the Christians, turncoat Jews who have become priests and propagandizers for Christianity. They say, oh, th- th- this is clearly the Talmud, especially the Agadic part, are Dvarim that are insignificant. But the people who know, they know they know the secret wisdom, right? No. And the ones that understand true intelligence is that, that the courses through the world, that we know that it's not that way. Because the way historically it came out was that this wisdom that was contained in what seems to be stories that seem to be very graphic and unintelligible, these agatitas are really can only be explained to the people who, who are the masters of these secrets. And someone who had already, I, I assume, gone through the experience and had been taught and had been initiated in this wisdom, they would find these statements to be hints to something that was essential 
things that were actually the great principles of Kabbalah. When I happen to happen to work with these pieces of Agadata, including the one that we've been talking about, about God's wearing tefillin, Ermos, I'm going to hint to you that their true value, their true aspects, is something that is tremendous, something that is actually even courageous and great. But I'm not going to tell you a thing. Why? As he implies, this is a book that I'm going to try to reach my co-religionists. But I'm not going to let this be Phil Berg's Kabbalah class. This is not what this is. And again, I'm nothing against Berg or the students of, of, of Eshlag. The period of the Rashba, and this I think is important for us, Nelson, because we live in the next, <laughs> the great sea change that occurs in the next generation. The, the Ramban, again, we know he's a student of maid that, okay, I'm the student of Nachmanides. The Rashba felt that he was Nachmanides' student. And it's clear to me that anyone who was close to the Ramban and, and the Ramban brought them into uh, his uh, you know, inner sanctum would be quite aware of the Kabbalistic principles that the Ramban's commentary constantly alludes to and sometimes can't be understood without. So I, it's clear to me whether they actually, that anyone who's a Talmud of the Ramban is somewhat of a Yodea in Chokmas Asoid. But he says that, just like his Rebbe... He's not going to tell you. That's right. And, and and he can't. It's wrong to tell you. And he says, <laughs> He says, however, it isn't just all. And this, I think, makes the Rosh a little bit different than even Nachman and others who have explained Sipure in the Gemara al Pisoid. There's actually two parts even there. In other words, these agaritas have an aspect of Nistra and Nigla, and they aren't necessarily contradictory. It's Kipri Allah. In other words, the Pri, of course, is the real Nistar. Yeah, the Allah is the leaf. That's what I mean, the leaf. In other words, the apple, which is like, oh, that's what I want to bite into. But, you know, there's this green leaf that's covering it, right? Or whether, whatever. The... That's nice. Don't bite the leaf. Right. <laughs> but that leaf is a protector. In other words, when you're looking for that fresh apple or the fresh nectarine and you're going to the tree to get it, you're going to zero in on the on the one that's under the leaf and say, oh, that's it. So he says, Periov Kodosh, the apple, the nectarine itself, of course, is holy, right? right. And and El Besa Otzer. In other words, it's 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 holy. Will be gathered in and stored into the uh, storage house. Right. If you really know how to eat it. But they're going to wave this piece of fruit. And what's going to allow them to wave that, as he says in a minute, is because it has the leaf part. And vi'alehu, the trufa, and this of course based on the Pasik, that the leaf itself has benefits. It has a tremendous benefit to it. It almost allows the leaf, the covering, the nigla part of the chazal, allows the, the chazal to actually have currency and to be waived. I don't know if the chachamim are, are, are being menif the fruit or being menif the leaves. But it's both, though. In other words, when, when I pick it, Nelson, 
I've got the I've got the essence, the Kabbalistic essence, but I also have the nigla that surrounds it, and I need both to wave it. And the truth is, is that the nigla is not just oh, that's not really what Chazal mean. The nigla is also important. Right. That's why he says When I get to a Chazal like this, and I know which ones they are, I'm going to only give a remez. And hopefully in years you'll understand what I mean by that remez. But you know what I'm really going to explain? Efarish nigleya. <laughs> I'm going to be mefarish the nigla. I'm really going to explain it well. And a yashiv l'shonam. And I'm going to really show. And this, of course, we have to love the Rashba for this, <laughs> because he's going to approach them with an exactitude of language, which many times we find modern darshanim don't even care about. But I'm going to explain the exact language. And what I think the intent of that leaf is, so to speak. And some of them, unfortunately, are written in such of a, a mysterious way, such a beyond way. The most I can do is basically explain the simple words. I think here he's referring to just Divri Agadita, which are, because of the mode of expression, it's very, very weird. Okay, but it's really a shot. There's, you know, there's no hidden meaning. Like okay. A good example of this would probably be where Rav Yehuda Hanasi is sitting in the base medrash and some uh, Roman speaker comes in and says, uh, they're, you know, they're looking for the, the big-nosed one or, you know, Balaaf right. or something like that. And it, it turns out that, you know, it turns out that the word nasi in Hebrew and the word nasus in Latin are quite similar. So he was, it was somebody's way of saying, hey, we're, you know, we're looking, for, they're, they're out hunting for the nasi, so you better hide. Or maybe the Maimari Chazal about how fat the various Amarayim were, or Tanoyim were. I would, I would imagine that has a nister to it. Right, right, right. I understand. <laughs> right. But okay, you know, you got, we got. We got the point. You know, so, sometimes there's a Gadotas, you know, the language is such that you can't understand what they mean. As opposed to Gadotas, which say, is this God? You're talking about God here? Or even, are you talking about, are you, are you talking about Rabbi Yishmael and, and, uh, and uh, Rabbi Elizabeth, Rabbi Shimon? Right. And is Avram Avinu really, there's someone who's sitting there in a cemetery and he's discovering, you know, Avram Avinu's body? And Avram, yeah, the Mara Samach Pedro. That's, yeah, that's a good one. And Avram and, and Sarah are like, you know, hugging, like as if, you know, like, yeah, and there's no Yetzirah, right? So there's nothing to be embarrassed about. There's no love affair? <laughs> I think we get enough from the Rashbi here, which, again, I don't see it in Yehuda Levi, where he implies to the king throughout the, the very long book that, you know, about the Bali Said and the Mukubalim, the same way you see here. Now, again, I, I'm, I'm willing to rework it, but I think we know who the Rashbi is. And I think we know that in that way, and maybe I'm wrong. I, I think I, I'm getting hints from him that even though his purpose is to stamp out the spiders and vermin and trying to neutralize what they're doing to Chazal, I think he hopes that his readership will maybe, I don't know if in his time, will be able to at least latch on to this in a way that the Remes will eventually take hold. And I think for us, that's why it's important. Neither of us, Nelson, and I think most of the people listening are necessarily threatened by Christian 
world. Not like it was, you know. Right. And I don't know if they're using the same weapons against us. They're using more of Tanakh more than they would be, oh, this these Gemars. Maybe it's because they're big Amaratsim today. They don't have the Mishumadim that they used to, right? Maybe the Mishumadim level has gone down. But I think we can make use of the Rashba's tone down, Pshatovadika, as you just did, as a gateway to Kabbalah and a Kabbalistic perspective in ways that perhaps have been ignored. I'll even give it to you, Nelson. And, and, and the reason I'm saying this is because I know that in Merkaz Arav, which I would have, you know, many times I think about traveling back in time to various yeshivas, but, you know, I, I would love to have spent a day in the original, you know, yeshiva where Rav Kook uh, had the Talmidim there, not only his son, of course, but Rav Shimon Starelitz and Rav Yitzhak Ariely. Please don't forget the Nazir. And the Nazir, right. That, that's a shear I would have liked to have been at, you know. And Rav Kook was giving shiurim and kuzari. Mm-hmm. And look who was there. The best. And it's unfortunate that, again, we don't extol these giants as much as we should. So what I'm saying is, I know Rav Kook, Zohar felt the kuzari was, it should be part of the curriculum. He doesn't say the same thing about You know what I'm saying? He felt the kuzari should be part of the curriculum. And we have some notes of his kuzari, shiurim. So I, I'm willing to give you that. It's almost like Avalafia in the Marnavuchim. It's so true, it's got to be Kabbalistically true as well. You know what I'm saying? I'm really trying to make just a very a very simple point. And that is, and I'm, I'm sure the Rajba is in, in complete agreement with this, that there's one thing which is Kabbalah proper, and then there's another thing which is let's say pshat and ta'amea mitzvahs. It's deep, but it's not but it's not Kabbalah. And concepts like tying these ideas onto your to your arm and you know having Hakadosh Baruch Hu's yichud tied to your arm like a choysam, and to have the shirish of the chachma, which is from Hakadosh Baruch Hu, that you tie that onto your onto your arm too, because that's the source of all of the intellect, and from there it flows up to your head, apparently. Although usually you'd say that we go from the shirish down. Okay, but that's how that's how your children are set up. And that by just tying all this to yourself and connecting yourself to these ideas which seem to be existing outside of you in some way, you can integrate into your mind the idea of a Kaddish Baruch Hu as the Bayre, Kaddish Baruch Hu as, as the you know creator of miracles, Kaddish Baruch Hu as the as as the one that holds everything together. And you can know Hakadosh Baruch Hu through putting on tefillin. That's why, and that's why you put on tefillin. That's why you wear them. So there, you know. Once again, it's 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 not all inside of your head. It's obviously outside of your head, but it's, but it's also, you know, there's some sense of Hashem's presence there that is that is operating and teaching you and interfacing with your with your own mind. And that's why tefillin is so important because it's it's us interfacing with something that is outside of our minds, but it's still a mind. And you have to just basically getting back to the same question. This presence that you are encountering when you wrap yourself up in tefillin, or when you put a talus on, for that matter, is it you know is it a kaddish baruch Is it not a kaddish baruch Yeah. You know, and once again, it's the, old, it's the same amount of shach. You know, if it's not really a kaddish baruch if it's some it's some sort of bria or some sort of thing, so then how can it you know how can it enlighten you any more than you already than your own mind? 
So that's really what I'm trying what I'm trying to focus on. There's there is I think this tradition in Chazal, which is not kabbalistical. It's considered pshat, and frankly, all of us, all of us Yidden, we use this language all the time. If you sense this proximity, you you pray, you know, you daven, you're supposed to imagine that you're standing in front of a, you know, Melech Godel Venoira. Is this just an imaginary thing or is it a real thing? Well, it better be real because if it's not real, who are you davening to? So I, I'd, like to, I'd like to try and offer, as I said, my two-thirds of an explanation or three-eighths of an explanation of what this might be. And it, it, works, it works just as well for the, for the Indian Aloiki, for the Kuzah, the Ramban comes from, and, you know, Hasidim and Baal Shem Tov for sure. You know, I think Chazal could accept the world as actually being real and being created and being objectively real. But because the Kaddish Baruch Hu's existence is unlimited, then it could be anywhere. The only thing, the only question is, how is it, you know, how how is it manifesting? And and you know, within the world of things, then Hakadosh Baruch Hu manifests as a no thing, as a nothing, if you wish. It's a phenomenally very important nothing because it's a nothing that, if it's there, it changes your perceptions of what's going on. You see things differently than you would than you would otherwise. You see things that you could not see just philosophically. For instance, the idea of creation, which you can only see if you have the Inyan Aloiki, you know, somewhere in your environment, or the possibility of of a hisdabkus between um, between a finite human creature and and Hakadosh Baruch Hu. It would be this kind of idea would be invisible if there wasn't the um, presence there. So the presence really is a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And if you want to ask, how can a Kaddish Baruch Hu be Rachmanul Itzlan, Chasmul Lahazkiri, and I kind of like broken apart in pieces, the answer would be no, there are no pieces. Okay, it's all him. Relative to himself, nothing ever changed. It's just a Kaddish Baruch Hu shows his presence here, and that's where things become transformed, and that's where things become changed. So, you know, the idea the, of HaKadosh Baruch Hu being the origin of consciousness and the origin of intellect and thought is something that you can take and tie onto your arm and put on top of your head. You can, you can do that. When you do that, then there's an interface between HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence and you, and that makes it possible for you to know what you otherwise would be unable to know. Another way in which this operates, and this is just was coming down to the to the idea of of minayin shakadosh baruch hu maniach tefillin. Once you put the tefillin with a kadosh baruch hu's mind on your head, then automatically that creates the opposite self perception. Also, that you yourself are enveloped in a presence of Hashem that actually takes you completely outside of the world. And it shows you that there is a self that you have that is HaKadosh Baruch Hu's knowledge of you. And therefore, from HaKadosh Baruch Hu's knowledge of you, you have an outpouring of Shefa that comes straight to you as a real person. So there's a part of yourself that can imagine yourself inside of a pair of tefillin. If I have a Shem in my tefillin, then I can be inside of a Shem's tefillin. And what does that feel like? So first of all, you know, it, takes you out of this universe, it takes you out of your limited self, and it puts you in the position of being an object of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's knowing. And that is a much higher madrega than you as, you, as your regular old self. So, Uvachain, there's now a communication between 
you as Hashem knows you. From the beginning of time, he knows you. From the beginning of time, he wanted you and he desired you. And from that knowledge that Hashem has of you, therefore you are able to exist from that. All these things, once again, have to do with various manifestations of presence, okay, which once again are not things. They're not objects, they're, but they appear in such a way as to give you a new form of cognition for the objects that you have around you. What comes to this from our, our Vaidas Hashem is that if you take the time to meditate a little bit and think about it, thinking about the presence of Hashem as a being that is unlimited as opposed to being abstract and utterly transcendent, and you focus on what that might mean, then you can actually begin to start having these experiences when you fulfill mitzvahs, which is really why HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us mitzvahs. Okay, so that's the end of my little uh, speech about what's going on over here. You know, sometimes there are ideas that are kind of like spice. You know, you try to follow a recipe and, and hope that it comes out tasting like what you remember from when you had it the great chef. But uh, sometimes there's a little something missing to make the whole thing hold together. And the chef didn't tell you exactly what little secret spice he adds. So here's be the little, you know, maybe, the little secret spice that makes Yiddishkeit a living experience instead of going through the motions. Okay, it's the idea of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence being outside any possible box and therefore being real and right there with you. And it's not a steer to Achtos Hashem because Hashem is Echod and none of, none of this reality has any chatzitza in HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Metzias. There's a phrase that, you know, Mahusai Ne'elam Umetziusai Mefursa. And I think that really summarizes the whole thing. Yeah, look, I, I'm not going to uh, disagree, or I'm going to try to process, you know, the, the depth of what you what, what you're saying. I do think that once again, you know, one can apply literary tools that are within the work itself, and you know, again, it's sort of like I guess really depends on what are the tools that you have. <laughs> you know, to me, I always feel that rereading can sometimes, you know, yield what you're talking about, you know, whether it's in, uh, in the Rashba's uh, descriptions or in other things. I mean, the Rashba does in the next paragraph, you know, talk about the fact that we are the first thought of the universe, right? And he does say that it's in God's creation, as God is creator, and that first thought of creation is us. So in a way, your existence is a embodiment of God's thinking and God's being a creator. The fact that we are is already God working through us in terms of what he wants. And therefore, as he says, that his pashtus machmaseinu. In other words, we are the first thought, which is the tefillinshal yad, and the tefillinshal rosh, which is the ispashtus, is also only because to create that playground of life that was meant to give us whatever, you know, our, our, our Torah mitzvahs, however it was supposed to work. So I, I think that he sort of says that. I'll just say one last thing here on, on this. And you mentioned before that you found it interesting that it was like the everything starts from the lave, and from the lave it goes to the moach. Right. Which is interesting because even in halacha, there's a discussion about 
you know, the chashivas of the Tzvon Shorosh, the Tzvon Shorosh are more chashiv, that it, that it has a greater kedusha than the Tzvon Shoyad. But I think that what might be in play here is that the lay versus the seichel in his, in other words, philosophical approach that the Rashba also was a very strong critic of, saw everything in the fact that man is capable of thinking and doing things, understanding the abstract world, and that's really the greatest part of a human being. And really that the Rosh should rule the heart, so to speak. Then you find this in Chassidus as well, in terms of the abode of Chassidus, especially in Chabad. But I think the, the Rashba here is trying to stress a anti-philosophical approach uh, where the main thing is the energies that push you as a human being, which is in your life. It's the emotional center. It's what gives you hislavos. It's what gives you uh, a sense of, uh, of wanting to find a purpose. That's where everything starts. And that aspect of what makes you a not uh, you're not just a you know a sedentary human you know a human being that wants to move and be involved is god working like he says that's and that's the shorish for the aschol and ispashtus it isn't like the rambam says well look at me i can think of abstract things i'm like god oh now i just have to refine that to a point that I'm not even thinking of anything physical. I'm thinking about the spheres or the or the ideas behind it. Now I'm sort of thinking like God thinks. No, really, you are alive and you are an energy that that is God's first thoughts in the world. And therefore, it isn't about the moach and its ability to contemplate, but it's about the heart in terms of being the the living organism. I got you. There, there is, you know, I, I guess it comes out a lot in in Chabad also about say let's say the the connection between the heart and not the mind but that which is above the mind and i was like desire yearning emotion so you can look at this in as something that is of a lesser value than the intellect and halavai that the intellect should rule the heart but there are certain times when there is a heart that is beyond the intellect and I, I, I'm pretty sure the Raj was actually referencing this kind of idea because beyond the tefillin shalroish that I'm putting on is the shirish of the you know the the shirish of the realities that is by that by Hakadosh Baruch Hu. and that is Hakadosh Baruch Hu's tefillin shalyad, you know, and and from the Hakadosh Baruch Hu's tefillin shalyad, the hispashtos, which more or less conforms to our tefillin shalroish, flows out. So we do kind of like a mirror image of that from the bottom up, but from the Hakadosh Baruch Hu, it looks like it's from the top down. Which yields another interesting question. So, in this concept of Hakadosh Baruch Hu Maniach Tefillin, is it only Tefillin Shalyad? Hakadosh Baruch Hu doesn't have Tefillin Shalraish. I don't know. I think I think I kind of see a hint to that in the Rajpa's structure. You know, Hakadosh Baruch Hu's Tefillin Shalyad gives rise to Tefillin Shalraish, and we mirror that starting with our Tefillin Shalyad, which is Lachora down, but really up. So that, that's the question. What is the? Remember, the Gemara says that they saw Kesher Tfilim Herolom. Right. Moshe saw the Kesher. What Kesher was he looking at? Was it behind his head? Well, Lechora, you'd say it's the Oyrif because you know because Right. So it sounds like he's wearing Tfilim Shorosh, right? Yes. On the other hand, there's an interesting Gersen Tikune Zoyar where um, the let's say the head of Zeiranpin. Um, or maybe the head of Arachanpin, whatever that is, is referred to as 
either karkafta deloimanach tefile or karkafta tefile. So, you know, there you go. Maybe, you know, maybe the intent of Chazal is that a Kaddish Baruch Hu, you know, from a Kaddish Baruch Hu's point of view, everything starts with the Tefillin Shal Yad. And Tefillin Shal Rosh is always the in-between state of his Pashtus. Um, it's just that when we do it within our own consciousness, we, we're following the opposite path. We go from the bottom up, from the emotions and the intuitions, let's say, up to the up to the Seichel. But that's really designed to bring a bring the reverse of that down. So once again, Baderach Efshar, kind of interesting. So maybe maybe the way the Rajba understands it, there's no there's no tefillin shel Rosh by the Rabbanu And I don't I don't see any indication for that in the Gemara anyway. The Gemara is all from a less scary welcome mat into Chokmas aside, and that of course is the the Rajba's there waiting for you and. It's only a hop, skip, and a jump to the Karakemach and Rabbeinu Bachia. And then this isn't even Kabbalah. This is Pshat, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, so Kol Dichvin Yeseh And I, I mean, really, it's it's one of the things that kind of very strongly changed my own experience of Vaita Hashem, made it much more, much more tangible, much more real, and much more experiential. I'll, t- I'll tell you what, when you and I were down by the Skelena Rebbe, and we saw something on him, around him, being there, you know, it was... You could look at his face and it was tremendously, you know, mispile from from seeing something there that, as far as I'm concerned, is Yilushchino. It's not the physical way that the Rebbe's nose is connected to his ears and his chin. It's not. It's not that. It's something spread out over that, kind of almost like a presence that hovers, and it's intangible. And if not for the Rebbe that it was on, so to speak, it, it would not be even visible. There wouldn't be anything there. And I think the testament to that is that despite the 45 years since those brachas were given, we can summon up the klastopanov of, of this tzaddik. And, you know, again, the human imaginatory, the imaginative faculties of persons are great, but it would be cruel indeed if God would allow us to believe that this was just some sort of phantasm that our imagination is constructing. It would appear cruel for God to do that. And like you, Nelson, I, I would believe that this was indeed that Inyon Eloki, that the Ritzonos, Elionos uh, of the Rabbanishon being the Spashet, and us hearing those brochos and being really warmed by their embrace and being able to bank on them 45 years later throughout whatever difficulties life has given us that those encounters with those with the Chesconareb and other tzaddikim. So take care, my friends. We will hopefully catch you next month as as another head banging, <laughs> brain twisting episode of some of my best friends are, you know, the thing that I can't say. You know, <laughs> take care, everybody. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.